Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood, and mental health. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Suicidal thoughts, much like mental health conditions, can affect anyone regardless of age, gender or background. While suicide prevention is important to address year-round, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month provides a dedicated time to come together with collective passion and strength around a difficult topic. The truth is, we can all benefit from honest conversations about mental health conditions and suicide because just one conversation can change a life. So, in today's episode, I interview therapist Katie Morton on suicide, how to help someone who may be self-harming, how to identify and end self-destructive behaviors, and what to do if someone you know needs a therapist but doesn't want to see one. Katie is a certified dialectical and behavior therapist and grief counselor and runs a private practice in Santa Monica, California. Her specialities include working with individuals experiencing eating disorders and self-harming behaviors, although she addresses all things related to mental health. Katie is well known for her YouTube channel, which now has over 985,000 subscribers and over 50 million views. In addition to her YouTube channel and strong presence on social media, she has appeared on the CBS, The Doctors, HLN, CNN, Dr. Drew on Call, E! News, KTLA, Fox News. She has also been featured on CNN, Vice, Glamour UK, Huffington Post, The Who, Vox, and many more. If you or someone you know is in an emergency, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK-8255 or call 911 immediately. These numbers will also be included in the show notes. And now, on to today's episode. Katie, I'm so excited to have you in the studio today. You have a very, very interesting series of topics that you discuss and such important stuff. And I'm really pleased and thrilled to talk to you about very important things today. So thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. Katie, just tell, start by telling us, my listeners, a little bit about yourself and you know who you are, what's not in your bio. Give us some insight into you and what, what motivates you to do what you do. Yeah, I've been on YouTube for, oh God, about eight and a half years now. It's um, amazing. I, yeah, your YouTube's amazing. That, it's crazy that it's been eight and a half years. Time flies. I create everything with my husband. A lot of people don't know, unless they've been watching me for a long time, that he's really the reason the channel exists. He's in film production, so that made oh, it a wow. little bit easier. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and as a therapist, I think it, I was really nervous to be online at first because we're not really known for putting ourselves out there that's kind of the opposite of what therapists do yeah but my audience is really what motivates me they ask questions about things that i i think being in the mental health space as a clinician i take for granted that i understand and that i know and so it's been really great to hear from my audience to understand where people are at and be able to offer some insights where i can and to watch them grow and change. I mean, it's the reason that I got into this line of work anyways, is just to watch people change, grow, and myself to change and grow and be challenged to learn more. It's been really, really rewarding and fulfilling. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, you really have a great following on YouTube. And I think it's really helped to change people's view in the narrative. As we both know, the narrative of mental health is terrible at the moment. So we need to change. And unfortunately, it's changing. And it's it's people like yourself and, you know, myself and there's some amazing people I've interviewed as well, where we're trying to change this narrative of stopping people thinking, oh, I mustn't talk about it or I'm sick or I'm ill, but actually realizing this is life and life is hard and we can help each other. So thank you for doing that. You know, you do a really great job at that. You run a private practice in Los Angeles and you specialize in eating disorders and self-harming behaviors. So what self-harming, can you, can you just talk to us about that? I, I, this is something we get Katie, so many questions about, and it's such a, it's a topic, even you say in one of your videos that not many therapists know how to handle this or don't like handling self-harming. And when it happens in a family, it can be devastating. People don't, it's such a scary thing. People don't know what to do. Can you explain it, demystify it, talk about it, define it? 
spoke about it in your practice. Of course. I think, like you were saying, to that point, self-injury has been so stigmatized and so misunderstood over the years. And when I was in school, I mean, I'm 36 now, so it's been a little while, but I'm not that far removed. Uh, we were taught that it only applies to borderline personality disorder. Mm. If someone is self-injuring, it's a subtype or not even a subtype. It's more like a symptom of borderline. They can have it with self-injuries behavior or not. And in my practice immediately, because um, I found myself working in an eating disorder treatment center when I was gaining my hours towards licensure. So that's kind of how my career took off. And we saw a lot of comorbidity with self-injury. Mm. However, I never saw any of the other symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And now in the DSM it came out in 2013, they did add in for, you know, areas that need more study. They added in non-suicidal self-injury. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But self-injury's behavior can be a lot of things. It can be what we hear about most is cutting, cutting on your skin. Usually it's in places that are easy to hide, like stomach, thighs. That's what I see the most or hear about the most, I should say, not see. But I have a lot of patients who have burned themselves. They'll hit their head against the wall. They'll punch the wall till their knuckles are all bloodied. And I think for a lot of us, we take some self-injurious behavior as, you know, quote unquote, normal way to express anger or upset, you know, Oh, it just punches the wall. And, but a part of it is that release, right? We know when we injure ourselves, our body releases certain hormones and, you know, it's like adrenaline, cortisol. There are certain things that our body will release to help us feel better. And it's that release, I believe, that gives people the, you know, kind of the high and makes them feel better. And so the way that I talk about self-injury with my audience is that it's not it's not a, just a part of borderline personality disorder. It's not always a suicide attempt it's a coping skill. It's, I feel so terrible. How do I get a release that feels good? Like for many of my, cause I, this is why it's so linked to eating disorders. And I see such a comorbidity, meaning they happen at the same time is like exercise. I have a lot of patients who will toggle between over-exercising and self-injurious behavior. And it's just one coping skill trading for another. And so I think the more we can, as clinicians, especially the more we can see it and understand it, not see it as an attention seeking behavior. A lot of people think that, and that's really damaging to mm. people who are struggling and it's so invalidating, right? It's, mm. I always feel like we all need attention and love and support. And why is that deemed such a negative thing? If I'm screaming out through you know, self-injurious behavior, I'm telling you something's wrong. I'm asking you for help. Mm. It might not be verbalize the way that we want to hear it, but we need to get away from, you know, considering attention seeking behavior bad or assuming something is and giving it that negative connotation. But yeah, that's just kind of like a, you know, a basic understanding of what self-injury is. It can look different for different people. I even, for some of my patients who struggle with eating disorders as well, they'll use their eating disorder as self-injury too. You know, it's like a slow way to hurt yourself. And so yeah, I think it's it's much more common than we realize. And I think the more we talk about it, the better, the more tools and tips and things that we can offer, the better. And for a lot of people, it's just nice to understand why they do it and why it can feel good, even though we know it's not good for us. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. I love the fact that you've brought up some very important concepts around this. The fact that it's invalidating if you don't, if, if the, the attention seeking, the way that's been made such a negative thing. Meanwhile, we are as humans attention seeking and attention seeking, hey, look, I just finished this or hey, look, I just, yet when it's someone who's actually really in a bad place and they don't know how to express themselves. And a lot of people really battle to express themselves or to be able to get out or they're not in an environment where they've been able to express themselves. So that it's Self-harm is not the ideal, but it isn't, you know, it's something that they're doing to get attention. So we shouldn't, just thank you for saying that. Attention seeking doesn't have to be, it shouldn't be seen as a negative thing. I like that. I also like the fact that you mentioned, and I'm just stressing this for the listeners as well, the comorbidity aspect, which is when things occur together. And that's one of the things that's so bad about the DSM. I mean, I don't like the DSM at all, but I hate it. Yeah, I hate it. I, I always say it's fire. It's a doorstop or firewood, but that's about as helpful as it is because, it, you know, it's just, it's just a bunch of people that are deciding on symptoms and you can't take pathologize people's emotions you can't medicalize misery so i'm just so glad you mentioned that and there's nothing and because everyone's so unique none of those things are it's so you've got to be able to 
Yeah. yeah so like trying you. to fit people in a box. Yeah. And you can't work, right? No, exactly. Because you can have two people in the same family going with the same parents, experiencing the same whatever, and they'll react differently because of our uniqueness. So we grab our, we grab our uniqueness, but then we try and stick our unique reactions in a box. So I just want to do stress that I'm so glad that you mentioned that. So that's really great. So in your practice, I know it's a big focus because not many therapists do focus on it. So do you see this a lot or is it maybe exaggerated because that is focus of your practice? Or is this quite a common thing in society? And is it changing? Is it growing? Is it increasing? I don't know. I, I feel like it's something that's been hidden in the dark for so long. So it's always tricky to know because just to share a story with you that was so impactful for me, this was probably about four years ago. It was one of the first trips to speak that I ever took. A member of our, my community brought me out to Elgin, Scotland to speak at their uh, youth center. And I spoke about all sorts of different things like building self-confidence, dealing with bullies and hate and having direct communication. I gave all these little talks throughout the week. It was like a, a whole event they put on. Lovely. And it was really, really cool. And there was an older woman I mean, not older, but older than most of them. Was, it was children, right? It was yeah, teenagers, yeah. after school stuff. But a lot of parents and adults showed up as well. And there was this woman probably in her late 40s, early 50s, who came up to me and showed me scars and said, I never told anybody because I thought something was horribly wrong with me. And yeah. And she was like, thank you for speaking about it. And that just, I mean, first of all, it was like, it was overwhelming emotion for me to think that she'd lived in secret for so long Same. without any help or understanding. And I feel like as a mental health professional, then I, I feel partially responsible. Like we should yeah. be talking about this. How yeah. are talking about this? And so that example, I believe shows us how much more common it has been. And I think social media has given people an outlet to talk about it, mm -hmm. right? To find groups of people who are struggling as well. So that unlike that woman that came up to me, they don't think I'm crazy. Something's wrong with me. You know, the shame associated with it, thinking mm -hmm. something's like wrong inside. I, I'm broken. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to demystify that. We have to debunk that and talk mm -hmm. about it. So I do think that it is much more common and it has been for a long time. However, I do know that because I specialize in it, because I talk about it a lot online, the people who are struggling are going to find me. Yes. They're going to talk about it more. But yeah, I think that I do believe it is more common than, we, than we've than we realized. Mm -hmm. And I think as we keep talking about it and as we get better treatment, you know, more and more people will come out of the woodwork to get help, hopefully, right? You know, break yes. their silence and Yeah. I think that's really an important break the silence because you know when you take when you treat something when you're taking a, a a mind thing and you're treating it like a cancer or a diabetes which is the narrative of the current unfortunate narrative I've I've been in the field for 38 years so I've watched the narrative change from you know in the early days when Prozac was suddenly ah heralded as the a solution and uh, you know and, and that, how the shift moved from let's talk about our stuff let's talk with professionals, let's talk with communities to, oh, you've got a broken brain, you're a broken person. So people people have been invalidated with the story and it's and it's so things got hidden again. When they were out and open to a certain extent, they got hidden. And and as you're saying, we need to make this available. So I think having just the platform, just using YouTube and using social media, this is such a positive platform that we have where we can talk about these things and so much is happening to it. So there's a shift, which I love now. I see this shift now where people can talk about it. And now you said something else that's very important and you said that self-harming doesn't necessarily have to be the most obvious that we think of, which is cutting, but also dieting, over, you know, orthorexia, anorexia, all the food, and then also exercise where you push yourself to extremes. So there's different ways that we can, and that we can end up harming ourselves. Is that, can you speak a little bit more about that? If you look at self-injury through the lens of coping, unhealthfully coping with something, right? I, and a lot of people are like, why did I choose this? A lot of my patients will ask me that. Well, why did I choose this? You know, of all the coping. And I'm like, because you didn't, you weren't shown or taught or made aware of other options. Mm -hmm. And it's really because we do get that release in our system when we are injured in some way or our body's put under strain or stress. It's hard then to say, oh, I'm just going to journal and I'll feel better instead of doing that because we don't get that same rush. We don't get that same high. And so it doesn't, I, I unfortunately always tell my patients when I first start working with them, I'm like, we're going to come up with some different coping skills to try and they're all going to suck and you're going to hate them, mm -hmm. but you're going to have to keep trying to do them. And I want you to try five and then I want you to wait 30 minutes and then do whatever you want, you know, like, so we're just working up this new muscle. 
So it's a kind of almost distraction from the internal emotional pain, doing something physical. But there is the cutting, the, the cutting and those, from my experiences, working with patients and so on, the cutting and all those kind of things, it's an immediate reaction. There's an immediate, there's so much pain that you distract it immediately, whereas it takes a little bit longer for the exercise and the diet and that kind of thing to kick in. So there's a, but both are in the same kind of category. It's a way of trying to get away from dealing with that internal stuff. And what you hit, which was really good, is that society has almost shamed people into not being able to express their emotions. We've become the society that, why aren't you happy all the time? You know, the happiness psychology, which has been a little bit distorted in the self-help movement. You know, why aren't you just, just say it and it'll be fine. So it's the people that aren't, that aren't, aren't able, which is unrealistic. It's not, it's, we're not avatars. So it's created a shame in our society. And, and I'm glad you're speaking about that. I'm glad you're saying we've got to lift this. It's not shameful. If you're feeling pain and you need to talk about it, that's not shameful. That's good. It's courageous. Yeah, and it's it's necessary, right? Life comes with ups and downs. And unfortunately, we, as a society, encourage like toxic positivity is what I call that when they're yes, like, yes. oh, you know, you know, just smile and shower and you'll feel better, you know? Exactly. And I'm like, do you understand depression? Do you know what's actually happening to a person like that? Like how, first of all, how invalidating that is, but also yeah. how much effort, simple things, quote unquote, simple things you're saying, which, you know, how difficult that'd be for them. And so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of something that we all need to do is understand that that life is hard. It's okay to talk about it being hard and that act of actually talking about it. And we can call it venting. You can call it processing. You can call it whatever you want. But I think saying it out loud, get, getting some form of validation from other people in your life, like, yeah, I hear you. That must suck. Or, oh, that is hard. Or, you mm. know, things like that. That's a lot of times all that we need. But if we've gone our whole life without any of that, how do we cope with that upset that we might feel that maybe we've stuffed deep? I had this patient years ago who talked about how her upsets was like, she'd put them in these bottles mentally. She goes, I put them in bottles and then I, I put them on the shelf and she goes, and I sit in this room and filled with shelves of bottles of, you know, and she said, I'm afraid if I uncork one, they're all going to explode, you know? And I think we have to encourage people to uncork how they feel to yeah. talk about it. You know, that's actually where the healing is. And these unhealthy coping skills, we all have them. I, I always try to encourage my audience not to think one is worse or, or you know, sicker. Because a lot of times there's, a, I'm not sick enough to get help or I'm not struggling enough. We all do it and all of it's worthy of assistance and yeah. support. And it could be anything from getting in a series of unhealthy relationships, whether that's friendships or romantic relationships. That could be, I have patients who will self-injure. And when we try to work on that, then they'll overspend. They'll start shopping sprees or like the impulsivity and that need for that rush, no matter how quickly lived it is. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I always talk to my patients about how I want you to notice how much better that makes you feel and for how long, because it's, it's a very short window of feeling better. And then I'm like, imagine if those little things that don't feel good right away, build up to this long-term feel good, you know, or if I have all these healthy ways of coping, then I can feel good for days, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, there's so much to unpack with it because, because we all have our coping skills for better, for worse. And I think, you know, validating those and, and talking about why we're doing things and kind of normalizing the human existence is really important. Mm. And that is a very big conversation that's being had today in amongst a lot of people that are moving in that direction. But there's still a lot of people that are under the impression that, you know, there's a mental health illness and you've got to go and get a drug and that kind of thing. So we, and we're fighting that now a little bit post-COVID as well. We're well, not even post-COVID, I shouldn't say post-COVID, in the midst of this crisis in this sort of next phase. Is they're going on about a pandemic, mental health pandemic, and making out as though everyone's going to be ill. But it's not an illness. It's just a matter of us coping with life. So we've got to demystify that. So you know, I'm so glad that you said that. Looking for something productive to do while in quarantine? Well, you know I always recommend making building your brain a part of your routine. Brain building is one of the best ways to improve your mood, cognitive flexibility, boost imagination and creativity, and help reduce anxiety and depression. So, how do you build your brain? Read. And one of the best ways to read and learn and grow is by using Blinkist, my favorite way to get more reading done. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways the need to know information from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. 
and with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book while you clean your house, exercise, or my personal favorite, while you go for walks. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books. All the books you want for all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf, try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link will be in the show notes. You mentioned about techniques that you give your, your patients to cope. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a lot of different things I do because everybody's different. So the main thing, first of all, I always start off with having them teach me about their experience. I think that's the biggest thing that as a clinician, it's important that we do is we don't assume we let them teach us their so experience. Just because so I've good. been treating eating disorder, self-injury doesn't mean I know everyone's reasoning, right? Absolutely. Because I've heard every reason, right? But there's always going to be something different. And so I let them teach me. And then we try to come up with what I call an impulse log, which is where you want to recognize what the impulse is, because oftentimes we'll do these things without realizing it. And so when you feel an urge to do something and I'll help them identify a few, I'll ask about eating habits, spending habits, if they gamble or not, their sexual habit, because it could be, they could be engaging in risky, impulsive sexual behavior, Mm -hmm. self-injury, you know, relationship, like how do they communicate? Do they lash out when they're upset? How do we navigate? How do we manage what we feel? So I'll ask about a bunch of different things like that and help them identify and put words to the ways that they're acting, whether it's like my urge to self-injury, giving them that language, my urge to overspend or to buy things I don't need or, you know, and then we'll put together the impulse log. So ask what the impulse is. So they have that wording to put in, whether it's urge to self-injure, urge to overeat, whatever it is, you know, what are we feeling at that time? I I encourage them to come up with one to three things they're feeling because often we don't identify what that is, mm. what we're feeling. It's just I'm so angry, I'm upset. You know, we don't really put words to it. And so I ask them to do that and then have them come up with three to five. It, five is for some reason like a magic number. I don't know why. Maybe you know, because you're definitely more in that research field than yeah. I am. But from like the qualitative research side, yeah. I know that, some reason five tends to work more with my yeah. patients. So we come up with as many coping, other coping skills as we can, whether that's calling a friend, texting with someone helpful, going for a walk, organizing part of our house, even doing the impulse log is on there, journaling, using feelings, words, and sentences. I could go on and on. Mm. And I want them to pick out words that work for them. And I want them to try three to five, five being the goal, but we'll try mm-hmm. to build up. And then I have them wait for 30 minutes. Then I tell them they have my full permission to, to engage in the behavior. Because the one thing that I don't want people to feel is that, oh, I have to stop completely like cold turkey. And if I relapse, then that's, it's, it all it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not doing my homework. And it will just feed into that shame that we already are experiencing. So it's important for them to know that, hey, I did the things. I still have the urge. And Katie said, it's okay. And I, I'm going to do it. It's, you know, I don't want any more embarrassment or shame or secret. I want them to be able to tell me, so good. you know, did it work? Did it not? And then we, it's just building from there because then those three to five coping skills that we have, we try to change them out. Did that one not work at all? Did it make it, you feel worse possibly? Was it impossible because it was three in the morning? You know, we, we need to try different things, figure out what will work. And that's, that's really how I start. But the, I think the main goal of any kind of unhealthy coping skill, kind of back to what we were talking about before is figuring yeah. out the root of it. I always talk about my to my audience about the root of the root. Like I'm not interested in necessarily, it's helpful, but it's not the goal of like, oh, well, my mom left me this, you know, nasty voicemail. And so I self-injured. Okay. Well, that tells us something, mm. but that's not the full story. Mm-mm. You know, that's just like a little snippet of a story. So I'm more curious about why that equates to that. Why is that the, the knee-jerk reaction? When did this start? 
when's the first time you remember wanting to self-injure? Or maybe Mm. I've had patients who started with like snapping rubber bands on their wrists or pinching Mm. themselves or, you know, things that you would do kind of like pre whatever the behavior is now building up to it. So anyway, it's just kind of back to the story to figure out why it exists because they exist for a reason. And until we heal that reason, the the need is still there for it. it. It's almost like if you had a broken bone and they just put a cast on it, but they didn't reset the bone, it's then gonna help. you know it's not going to actually help. It makes it feel better for a bit, and you're kind of okay. But that the reason for that, it's still broken. You know, something's still broken, so we have to fix that. I love that. I love what you said, and it's so scientific because a lot of the work that I've done is around. Also, you've got to go and find the root of the thought. So the fact of self harming is a thought, and that thought has got all of its components, and the thought's made of memories. And you've got to go back and find what is that, and what are the memories, and that takes work. And what is the thinking, feeling, and choosing behind that, and what was the cause for in the first place? And if you don't do that work, it stays in your brain. I always use this image, Katie. Of I don't know if you've ever seen me with my tree, but this is a toxic tree, and that's I mean literally in your brain. This is some of the research that I've. And over these years is that you know your your thoughts are real things so if you've experienced something and it's then and you say as you said your mom my mom phoned me I saw self-harm because of something she said but that's just the sort of the surface you've got to go dig down and find all the connections and right down to the root level so I love what you're saying so that's very scientific and totally on board and when you pull that up you change it that brings me to something else that, that I heard you say in one of your videos about self-harm you were reading from someone's book, but then you went on to explain it. And I thought, wow, that's the first person who's actually explained this in a very similar to way how I understand dealing with any toxic issue and how we manage it. And you spoke about how the you're sort of transferring energy. And I know from my research in the brain that this thing creates a disruption of energy in the non-conscious level, which is not the unconscious level, it's the non in n And if you've this totally disrupts our system and you're going to want to try and deal with it and self-harm is one of the ways that there's multiple as you said there's an infinite way that we can but when you so you're trying to dissipate because this energy disrupts brain function and body function and and mind function because it's they're separate and integrated and so you want to dissipate that and one of the things with self-harm is it dissipates that but it dissipates from there to another toxic issue so it doesn't solve the problem it's just a shifting of energy so that's kind of how I explained it but I heard you saying something quite similar about the shift of energy from one to can you talk a little bit about it in the way you explained it It, i don't remember exactly because i've done so many videos but i'll I'll tell you what i think conceptually yeah conceptually the idea of it's like the release i've talked a lot about the release of the energy right i think for a lot of people especially and i love that that toxic tree because the more i learn about the brain and memory formation and how the amygdala associates if we've ever been traumatized right our amygdala is if you guys don't know, I call it like our fire alarm. Like it's like, whoa, whoa, it sounds the alarm. It's like fight, flight, freeze. It's emotion, you know, our emotional experience. And I could be completely not doing a good job. This no, you're doing a good job there. The amygdala is it's a perceptual library. So, but it's for good and bad emotions. So it's been very misaligned because it's been told that it's only for bad. Most of the public think, oh, amygdala, amygdala, fear response. But it's also joy, happiness, peace. It's a, it's a library of emotional perceptions. So you, and it, and when those perceptions are imbalanced, it will be like a fire alarm. So that is, and, and, and remind me to tell you about the science behind the five, because there is science behind that too, if you want to know. But carry on with what you're saying. I love, I like the release concept. So go ahead with that. It's very good. Yeah, because, and the reason I brought up the amygdala is because when we've been traumatized, which a lot of times self-injury is born, and these coping skills are born out of trauma, not always, but, but sometimes. And the amygdala is constantly, it's keeping us safe. So it's looking, you know, our body's primed to, to seek out threat, right? So it's looking for things that could be threatening or upsetting. And if we've been traumatized, like I'm writing my second book right now about trauma, Good. part of it, I was saying like, let's say I was abused by my uncle. And every time I was abused, he gave me peanut butter and crackers. Okay. Peanut butter and crackers are not traumatizing. They're not upsetting. But However, my, mm-hmm. my brain, yes, my brain associates the smell, the taste, even maybe the texture mm. if as I grab a cracker. And so I could not even remember, I could not recall this memory until maybe I'm 15 and my, I'm over at a friend's house and her mom brings out this, the crackers and peanut butter as a snack. And, and I then guess. I, poof, I'm back there. And that pull, that, that energy, that upset that we can feel can feel so intense that there's nowhere, we don't have any action to take. I think that's really where the healing begins is in, in taking positive action. But in the moment, we don't know what to do to get that release, to get that energy, that upset, that 
all of the triggers, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. out and we can feel frozen. And so for a lot of my patients who've struggled with any kind of trauma, the act of self-injury releases some of that energy. It releases some of that frustration, that upset. Because energy, I think a lot of times we think of like, oh, I feel energetic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that, but it's like emotional energy. And we trust me, if anybody's ever been enraged or so excited, you couldn't wait to tell someone about it, you know that energy. Yeah. And so they when we, when we self-injure, oftentimes we don't have another way to let it out. And that's, that's how we kind of release it. And I don't know if, is that what you're yes. referencing? No, that is. Yeah, that is. And you gave a great example there. I like that with the, how associating with the smell and taste of the, and the food can become like a trigger. And that's just one example. It could be a, a, sight, a sight sound, whatever, but you get those triggers and that's P, the PTSD element of it. And, and you've got to get it out. And, and what we've been trained in today's society is to just label it and shove it down. It's a symptom of, as opposed to, no, it's not a symptom of a disease. It's a symptom of something that happened in your life. And you've got to find that cause and you've got to change it. So that's really, in terms of the five, what's really interesting there is that our thoughts, we we have many thoughts in a day. I mean, we don't know how many, but the estimate from the science is anything from 8,000 to 60,000. But I thought the big thing is, is the thought has got memories in it. And at any one moment, we can, in a 10 second sort of period of time, a few second time, we, we bring up between five and seven of those thoughts and, into, and be consciously aware like a comic strip. And so that's why, and then it seems to be that then they sink back into the non-conscious and they come up again. So there's, that's just one of the things behind the five, but people, it's a good number that people can get their head around. So it's in terms, yeah, there's a lot of different little science. So I just wanted to mention that. So I'm glad you mentioned the five because I've spoken about it before. So I'm glad you brought that up, which is really great. Yeah, that is interesting. Our brain is so fascinating because I always know I was taught. I don't even know where I read this. It's just something that I've always like abided by is like the five is something I've noticed with patients. And then when people are trying to make lists of things to do, I'm always telling people don't make it longer than seven. Seven is the number of things that your brain can actually hold. That's why phone numbers, you know, my area code are seven digits long. Those are things that we can actually hold on to during the day. I don't know if that has any. Yeah, know, it's just it's, still it's yeah, it's our conscious mind. So our non-conscious mind can handle anything, but our conscious mind, when we're consciously aware, then that seems to be the little time frame that we work within, which is so interesting. So it's very practical. It's a very practical thing. This episode is brought to you in part by International Justice Mission. For more than 20 years, International Justice Mission has worked to end slavery and violence around the world and create more just communities where people aren't trafficked or abused in the first place. And an important part of this work is to provide trauma-informed therapy and care to people who have experienced this type of abuse. People like Ruby, who is from the Philippines. Ruby was 15 years old when her parents died. Shortly after, she was offered a job at an internet cafe across the country. But as soon as she arrived, she knew she had been tricked. Instead of working at an internet cafe, Ruby was sexually exploited over webcams to predators around the world. In an IJM undercover operation, Ruby was rescued and brought to safety. But that was only the beginning of her journey to freedom. For years after her rescue, International Justice Mission supporters have walked with Ruby to make sure she has everything she needs to journey towards healing, especially trauma-focused therapy. Today, Ruby is safe. Because of the healing she received, she was able to start dreaming of her future again. She graduated from college and is considering pursuing a law degree next. Trauma-focused therapy is critical to help survivors move forward and heal. You can make this healing possible by providing an hour of therapy for a child like Ruby. For just $45, you can provide trauma-informed therapy that will change a child's life. Head to ijm.org forward slash Dr. Leaf and help vulnerable children heal by giving the gift of therapy today. That's ijm.org forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and more details will be in the show notes. Moving on, I wanted to pivot to to asking you, what about if you are a parent of a child who's harming or a friend or spouse? What what should you do and what shouldn't you do to help them? Yeah, I get these questions all the time. And and I want everybody to know I understand it's hard to to see someone you love hurt and to not know how to help. And parents especially mm-hmm. have a really difficult time at first admitting something's wrong with their child because we don't want to admit that. And I understand. And then we want to fix. And so I know this is really difficult to hear, but you cannot fix this yourself. Oh, that's so good. Say that again. Say that again. 
you cannot fix this yourself. I know we want people like friends too. They want to help. They want to fix. They want to make it better. And the only person who can actually make it better is the person who's suffering. And the way that we can best assist them in that, because we can still support. I don't want people to think, oh, I just have to let them do their thing. We can support, but the best thing we can do is let them teach us about their experience. Don't assume don't think that you already understand because you read a parenting blog or you got one down a Reddit have a trail and found out some information. We want to know what it's like for them. Let them tell you what they're comfortable sharing about the what's happening and offer to support that. So mm-hmm. I'm going to support by doing, you've told me what your experience is. I'm going to read more. I'm going to ask more questions. I'm going to give you the time you need to come around to, you know, to talk more. I'm going to support you getting help, whether that means I help you find a therapist or I help with the copay or the payment of that, or I take you to it. Parents and friends can both support in that way. However, you know, obviously being guided by the one who is struggling and then just check in. That's really the best things that we can do is just, how are you? I'm here if you need me. And check-ins shouldn't, should be judgment-free. None of this, like, Mm. are things getting better? They should be. Or have you seen someone you should be, you know, I want, I always say like, you're shooting all over it. Don't shoot. Just let it, (laughs) just let it be. Let them tell you how they're doing and, and, you know, listen to them. And sometimes people, a lot of my viewers who are having a tough time say, I just want someone to be with me. Mm. I just want someone to like, Maybe I know it's different now because of coronavirus, but not necessarily, but you could still mm-hmm. order food and come over to, with that one friend, you know, if you're being mm-hmm. responsible. I think just being with someone is, is often what they really need. And some of the things to not do, number one, don't ask to see self-injury marks. Mm-hmm. It can feel very, I don't know. I don't invasive, know invasive. Yeah. Invasive. Mm-hmm. And I've told, I've been told from my audience that it's like, the vulnerability that it takes to do that is like mm-hmm. overwhelming. I'm mm-hmm. not ready. It's shame-filled, embarrassing. Shame. It, it's just too much and it can send them in a dark spiral. So please don't ask. If they offer to see, make sure that when you look, you say that must have been hard for you. There's no judgment around what it looks like or what's happened or oh, shock. It's more like that must have been really hard for you. You know, just validating that it was uncomfortable and it felt bad. Mm-hmm. Um this is ex- this is excellent, by the way. Uh, excellent, excellent advice. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Because I think a lot of people, again, are scared or they assume it means, oh, they're trying to, you know, kill themselves. Mm. And like we talked about, it's more of an energy release. It's a coping skill. It, it, mm. You know, you can ask them, hey, do you have thoughts of suicide? It's okay mm. to ask that, too. I think it's fair. If you're a parent and you're worried, ask. Because mm. in my experience... The answer is no, most of the time. And even if they're like, well, yeah, I've thought about it sometimes, you know, as a therapist, I dig into that. I'm like, oh, do you have a plan? Do you have the means? You know, I do all my checking on it and, and they don't, it's more like, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with this. Mm. And so, you know, you can check in and ask, it's okay. You're not going to make them think of it. I know a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to make them suicidal. That's not true. Mm. Um, It's actually better. The more you talk about it, they can feel better. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else and not rushing them, their treatment or their recovery. It's really just supporting as as non-judgmentally as possible. So giving them access to the care that they need, asking how they're doing and really listening and doing your own learning, you know, as they teach you, read up on things. There's a great book. I forget what the gentleman's last name is. I think his first name is Stephen, but it's called Cutting. I think it was the book. Yes, you held it up. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful book. People can go to your YouTube channel and they'll put the link in the show notes and they can actually, because you've categorized it and there's one, you have the category of cutting and then there's, I think it's the second video you did there and you actually hold up the book and you talk from that. And so people can go in and find that. But you just, you summarized two lists there. I don't know if you, you explained it. Excellent advice. Quickly just summarize the do's and the don'ts. So the do's like you start. Okay. So let's just quickly, just, just rattle them off if you can just remember. So the do's. Yeah. is seek to understand seek to understand their experience and support where you can. So that can be like taking them to things or checking in on them, all of that. Then the don'ts are, you know, like, don't assume, (laughs) don't ask to see their self injuries behavior. Don't look for, want to see their cuts. And if they show you again, no judgments and don't try to rush their recovery, let them go at the pace they need and support along the way. Mm. 
Excellent advice. That's going to help so many people. Thank you for that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about eating disorders because you've mentioned that a few times and, you know, we've got the whole awareness now of orthorexia, anorexia, and also once again, it's been labeled, you know, we've kind of made them it's and they're not quite as simple as anorexia, bulimia. Those are just more words for the behavior, but there's so much more behind them. And I know from my research and the world that I move in that the current treatments are very ineffective. They're sort of traditional, very, very ineffective. In fact, they actually will say that's 95% ineffective. And then they land up putting them on a lot of drugs, which then adds to a lot of other problems. But there have been some very successful approaches. And those have been much more of a family-oriented love, almost like the way you've just described the treatment for the intervention for someone with, with cutting is to come in a much more supportive, loving way, help, helping to understand, et cetera, et cetera. From my understanding of thy research, the work I've done, that approach really works. And it, and you said something so key was harming. You said that the person has to want to, you can't fix them. So as a parent, your most natural thing, I have four kids, the most natural thing in the world that you want to do is just fix everything for them, put them in a bubble. And we can make things worse by doing that. So it's that recognition of help me understand. I love how you said that. Help me understand what you're going through. Let me learn. Let me educate myself. I really found that great. So can you talk a little bit about eating disorders and what's happening and how it's changed and what's the right way to approach it and so on? And also, Rexia, let's, let's talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, I think so. When it comes to eating disorders, again, kind of back to our original discussion about how we don't really like the DSM, I always tell my audience, like, it's a good place to start, right? I understand its need for existence so that we as clinicians can kind of learn about symptoms and what things can look like, but that isn't, again, everybody's different. Mm -mm. And the biggest frustration within eating disorders is that, oh, I don't meet the criteria for anorexia for a long time until the most recent, I want to say in 2013, when the newest DSM came out and just hear that again in 2013 is the first time they removed the criteria for anorexia to have, must have lost their period. So what does that mean? If I'm a male, do I, I can never, it, it's so. Yeah, it's so illogical. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. And not to mention until 2013, we didn't have binge eating disorder as an eating disorder, which I believe is the most common eating mm. disorder. Mm. Um, the one that often goes the most untreated. When yeah. we say eating disorder, I'm 100% sure that everybody thought of someone who was underweight, but we use food. The thing that I think people need to understand overall about eating disorders is that kind of the same way self-injury is it's a coping skill for something else going on. And the way that my patients have described it over the years is they want to feel either so uncomfortably full that they can't think about anything else or so uncomfortably hungry that they can't think about anything mm. else. And I think, I think of eating disorders and self-injury alike is like a numbing out. It's like, I can't cope with this. I don't have any tools. The only thing I can control is surprise, surprise myself. So what am I going to do to myself to help me feel better? And so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different eating disorders, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. And then there's also what used to be called eating disorder, not otherwise specified, but now it's OSFED. It's otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. It doesn't really matter. I hate those terms. They are. They're terrible. They just lock you in. They do, yeah, but what it really yeah. means is if you don't fit the other criteria for any of the other ones, then they just like lump you in that one. Bucket. Yeah, catch-all. Yes. <laughs> and most of my patients are in that catch-all. I was going to say, they could just eliminate all the others and just have that because seriously, it's normally co it's all comorbid and it's symptomatic of something else anyway. Exactly. It should just be eating disorder. I yeah. struggle with eating issues. And what I always tell people, because I get a lot of questions about like, oh, well, is this an eating disorder? I only insert things, insert eating disorder behaviors. And the, mm -hmm. I always come back to this and this does not follow any diagnostic criteria, but in my, again, qualitative research of years of working with these patients yeah. is if we think about food more than 60%, 70% of your brain space is taken up with those thoughts. Yeah. Food mm -hmm. is an eating disorder because that's not healthy behavior. Mm -hmm. brain like you were talking about how many thoughts people could have in a day we don't really know but i've heard anywhere like you said up to like yeah. 60,000 90,000 yeah it's a lot of thought even 8,000 that's a lot of thoughts it is a lot all those thoughts are all food related you know if even 60% of those thoughts are food related it's a lot that's not that's yeah that's not a that's, that's not a, a healthy mm -hmm. relationship balance yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
because I'm sure as someone personally who doesn't have an eating disorder, I only think about food when I'm hungry and when I'm eating and then I'm done with it. And half the time, even when I'm eating, I'm already like, okay, what's on next on my schedule? Yes. Yeah. I've already gotten the thing that my body needs and now I'm moving on. Yeah. Um, And I think for a lot of people, it's been, they've been thinking about food so much for so long. It's hard for them to imagine not. And so that's the norm. Right. And so I always try to tell them, like, just notice how often you're thinking about it, because if it's a, if it's a lot, that's an eating disorder. And there's no shame in that again, but it's just no. a coping skill. And you are correct. Treatments are not effective because like I always and you have to pardon my I'm going to cuss here I'm preparing you for it. <laughs> it's, it's not about the fucking food. Yeah. I always tell people they want to focus yeah. on the food. Oh, it's going to be this. It's, they're yeah. to just eat. Just eat a sandwich. Just stop eating so much. Exercise more. It's not about that. That's a complete misunderstanding. That'd be like, I don't know, even with drugs and alcohol, it's assuming that that that's the only problem. Oh, well, if they just don't have access to to alcohol, then they'll be fine. It's crazy. You don't think there was a reason that they, you know. So stupid. And then they make it a disease. So you can't control it. So now there's this lack of control and use this really stupid avatar type control and we'd not be brilliant and we have reasons for everything we do even if they're crazy things that we're doing there's a reason yes and and chalking it up to just the symptoms is just it's not terrible it's so invalidating it's so dehumanizing yes 100 percent. and then people are like well why can't i get better you know i'm eating more now and it's very common for an eating disorder to start out as one type like, oh, I'm under eating. Let's say I've met the criteria for anorexia. That's what I go to get treatment for. Well, then I come out with bulimia because I have to eat at the treatment center, but I found ways to purge, whether it's through laxative abuse, actually through, you know, purging through vomiting, over-exercise. Whatever, um, yeah. Again, I think a lot of people assume purging is just throwing up. And I'm like, nope, yeah. there's a lot of ways that we can purge. You can burn calories, yeah. <laughs> compensatory yeah. behavior, they call mm-hmm. it. So it's like, how are you compensating for what you ate? And so the real treatment again, kind of the same way we talked about self-injury is like finding the root of it. Mm-hmm. Why does it so exist? Good. So if we take away that reason, if we heal that trauma or we better understand why our relationship with food is so flawed because maybe our father had some strange relationship with food, if we can come to terms with that, then it, the reason doesn't exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? There's- oh, absolutely. There's a, you, you demystify it. You reconceptualize it and you demystify it. I am constantly on planes, traveling to conferences and all over the place. And one major problem I used to have was dehydration, which really made me dread flying. Dehydration also made jet lag and headaches so much worse. But ever since using liquid IV electrolytes, flying has become so much more enjoyable. Liquid IV can provide the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water. It contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana, and is healthier than traditional sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors, preservatives like Pedialyte or Gatorade. If you're dehydrated, try Liquid IV. It's the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code DRLEAF at checkout. That's 25% of anything you order on Liquid IV's website. Just go to liquidiv.com and enter promo code Dr. Leaf to save 25% and get better hydration. That's liquidiv.com promo code Dr. Leaf. Don't wait. Start properly hydrating today. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. A lot of the the work that I do in terms of understanding memory, memory building, the science of thought, all of that stuff. One of the big things that that overarching philosophies that I developed my techniques from was we've got embrace, process, and reconceptualize. That's those are the basic philosophies. Those are your surgery tools that you're using to do your brain surgery without the blood. You know, and that's exactly what you're saying. You have to find, you have to embrace this thing to find out what is and process through to find the roots. You've got to find this thing. And and de- and and change and reconcept. I always use this, and you've got to reconceptualize it into the healthy tree because their thoughts look like trees in your brain, and that's a fact. Those that's the science, and you can do that, right? We know yeah. that it connects the things. I mean everything, and and in one thought, I mean there's a thought. Look, just look at all the memories in one thought because the thought contains memories. There's thousands. There could be millions, and each of those is connected, and then these things connect with other thoughts. So like a root system on a tree in trees. 
you know, they're such complex and, and, and it's so, it is, it works so well. And, and it's so, each person is so different. And I don't want to say the word unique. Our thoughts are like a veritable universe and they're never the same. So if, if one person's thought is like, in this infinite number of universes, how can we take humanity and stick them in these boxes? Yeah, so we've yeah, got we to. Can. Yeah. yeah, it's like the DSM doesn't work and treatment doesn't work. Like one form of treatment doesn't work. No, and they keep doing it. This is what amazes me. They keep repeating the same thing over and over that doesn't work. We, we have to literally, often your families, I don't know if you found this, but often having your, a good therapist, and I want to talk about that in a moment, but having a family that is trained to know how, and families naturally love. So you just have to ex- help them use their love to support. That, that natural instinct is to support. So it's to just, instead of thinking, okay, I've got to now put my child in the hands of a professional it's better to not put your child in anyone's hands. It's better to actually call in the professional to guide you to operate in love. I don't know. That's just my, I get on a bandwagon with this because I have seen so much, so much damage being done. So I'm sure you have too. 100%. And it is very, you're right. Like a support system is key to recovery. And I like to say support system because some of my viewers, it came from like trauma backgrounds where their families are not. A no, they're not support. No. Or they're out of the foster care system. And I think it's really important for, for people to know you can create your own family. It's just important yeah. that we have some of that structure that we have. I always like to, it's like when I'm putting together safety plans with patients, meaning like if the patient has any suicidal thoughts or even with self-injury, mm. and I do this as well, but it's like, who would you call or text or message if you are having a tough time? And one of those might be like a support group online. I, I think that is a great resource, yeah, it's especially a great in the middle resource. of the night. Yeah. And so we want to make sure we have resources 24 seven. It's wonderful. So, but we need to have some people in our lives that we feel like we can just be. And so it's finding those people and, you know, putting effort and energy into those relationships, even though I know it's difficult to trust and it's hard, but, you know, working towards that, I think is always a really good goal in recovery. That is such good advice, and it's so it's so relevant because you also it is you, the way you stress it, it. Family may not necessarily be your blood family; it could just be a group of really good friends, or as you say, an online community. There's such incredible amount of research showing the support of the effectiveness of online communities, tremendously effective. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a moment just about suicide as well, because you've mentioned it a few times and it's come up in the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and, and, and just some advice maybe with family, with a family who've got loved ones who've, who've either spoken about it or thought about it, or maybe, they, maybe someone's watching this now who's feeling suicidal. Can you give some advice and talk around that a little? Yeah. Of course, I think there's a couple of things. I think with coronavirus and this isolation, I do believe that suicide rates are going up. I mean, I've heard from my colleagues in my area that it is increasing. And I know my own patients were doing more check-ins than ever. So just to normalize it, I think that when people feel suicidal, the, the common misconception is, oh, they're just really depressed. And while that can be a component of it, suicide is really more of a lack of hope. Because you have to understand that, like, if I don't want to be in the future, if I don't want to live till tomorrow, that's because I don't think tomorrow's going to be good and the day after that's not going to be yeah. either. And so it's this lack of hope for, for a better future. And so when it comes to if you're struggling, first of all, just know that it does get better. Mm-hmm. If, if I can be that one little spark of hope for you, mm-hmm. just know that there are people out there who care, who can support. There's everything from the crisis text line to suicide prevention lines and know that it always seems bad when we're in it, but it's like driving through a tunnel with your car. You have to keep going and the light will start. You'll see it at the end. And so finding the support as soon as you can is really, really beneficial. And really, I encourage you and to keep to also to talk about it. Mm. I think too often we, again, stigmatize suicide. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I'm so messed up. Like, why would I think that? And I can't tell you how many of even my close friends, mm-hmm. as I've gotten to know them, like I met them later in life, talk about how they, you know, attempted suicide in their late teens yeah. or early 20s. So, you know, I, it does get better. It, you know, it's important to keep talking about it. It's important to, to vent about what's going on, to express all that you're feeling. And I think as far as a, from a family standpoint or a friend standpoint, back to kind of what we talked about with self-injury is just, checking in, not judging, and just being there. Mm-hmm. Those are the biggest things that you can do. It's it's being that supportive system. It's saying like, like for instance, one of my friends actually set up this system where he, because he struggles with suicidal thoughts, where he sends out little colored circle emojis and it'll be like red means I need you to come get me. I'm having a really hard time. Oh, that's but like fantastic. Green is good. 
it's like green is, is great. I forget all of them. There's like four colors, but let's just Brilliant. Say red, yellow. And so he doesn't have to say anything. And his friends that are close to him who know about this know what that means. Like, maybe I just need you to come over. Maybe I need you to take me to the hospital. Maybe, you know, we, I think it's okay to have that language and yes. to not be afraid to talk about it. A lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, are afraid that, oh, I'm going to make them think about it. I'm going to cause them to be suicidal. Mm-mm. No, no, it's okay to ask about it. We just have to be willing, like as parents, especially, we have to be okay with hearing either op, like either answer, right? They might say, yes, I am thinking about it or no, I'm not thinking about it. And I want you to be prepared to hear both and respond with love and support mm-hmm. so that there's no more judgment or shame that we don't like compound that. And so, yeah, talk about it, mm-hmm. support. Suicidal thoughts are very common, especially passive ones where they just kind of like float by, like we're talking about yeah, thoughts, right? Yeah. There's tons of thoughts we have. And so the sooner that you start talking about those thoughts and the sooner we start getting some support professionally and socially, the better. But yeah, it does get better. Totally. I, you've said, I want to undergird what you said. It's excellent. And it also, the research does show that lack of hope is really a core thing. If people feel hope and then also invalidation of who they are as a person, you know, that, that if they feel like I'm not worth anything, that my identity is compromised. And that's why we see so much amongst the LGBTQI community, because they get so invalidated by the, the identity, you know, so that's a two massive reasons. And, if, and then the other thing I want to undergird what you said is that get it out, because a lot of that, the, the research and into interviews with people that have survived suicide attempts is talking about it. The more you talk about it, the more you demystify it. And from a scientific point of view, as you talk, you get things out. As soon as they're out, they are weakened. You have more control. So it's sore, but it's a sore outside as opposed to sore inside. And it's a different way of coping. There's just a complete shift in in the mind-brain connection there in terms of getting it out. So it's really important. And then the other thing you said, which I undergird, there's a lot of research showing that it is very common. At least 90% of the population, if not more, will have at some point in their life suicidal thoughts. And it's the and the people that go ahead with suicide. I mean, obviously, research is changing all the time. But just from from my and I just want to stress this because this is such a serious topic. Is that you get shocked by people that seem to have it all together and then they commit suicide. It's you've got to a, a lot of that is around. Oh, you're this perfect person, so you or you've just got your life together. So what have you got to complain about? And people feel like they have to live up to the Joneses or live up to expectations, and they don't talk. And so it, and there's this oh, it's weakness if I talk about. We've got to take that away. Talking about how you feel is a strength. Not a weakness you know and if we can release that if we can change that it also will help people to say hey listen i do feel even though i'm x y and z i actually feel suicidal because of x y and z and just the talking it reduces the chance of the doing because you're getting it out so those are just some things that i just i don't know if you want to comment on any of that no but i love that that's all very important and i i really i i want to underline how you how you said that people think oh they have their life together and then they took their own life right and yeah. people are shocked and I think the the problem that we have is it's kind of back to the stigma or like when I talk about eating disorder, when I say eating disorder, you think of someone who's emaciated or underweight mm. and we have to change the way have to change presume that illness looks. Would you think that cancer only looks one way? It only affects exactly. one type of person. It exactly. So why is mental illness any different? Because exactly. it's really not. Yeah. So that's, that's very, very important. And we all battle. There isn't a human on this planet who has is not battling with mental illness. Yeah, so it's, it's as you say, you talk a lot about mental health. I like that you take that angle. I do too. That it's we all be we all, all battling with keeping our mental health where it should be because it's normal to feel the experiences of life. So the illness is not that you weird or something or crazy or loony and all the terrible connotations, but you are just being a normal human suffering from the experiences of life. Katie, there's so much more I want to talk about, but we've run out of time. So you please, will you come back again? This has been such a great, great conversation. I've really loved it. And how can people get hold of you? Oh, yeah, I have a YouTube channel, Katie Morton, as well as I have a podcast myself, Ask Katie Anything, where I talk candidly and openly and talk about mental health. Any questions my audience has, I answer them. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. It's been so great. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. 
and follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.